Scripture to 2 Samuel chapter 8. The title of today's sermon, David Subdues His Enemies. We're progressing through 2 Samuel. Next week we will uh, be introduced to very uh, important and very encouraging uh, young man named Mephibosheth. Today, however, we're going to see David in conquering uh, God's enemies, as well as him establishing uh, his administration, his cabinet for governing Israel. Here once again, the very word of God. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Ammah from the land of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he had had to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. David took him from 1,000, took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. Then the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah. David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that had, been, that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Beta and from Barothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a large amount of bronze. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had, found, uh, he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of the Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Abimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Sariah was the scribe. Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. 
so ends the reading of God's Word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, without the work of your Spirit illumining our minds, these portions of Scripture would remain obscure to us. Yes, they recount historical events of note. They've been recorded for eternity in your Word. So their importance, by virtue of that record, means that they are important to us. And yet, we often don't, don't see and understand the importance. And so, Lord, we pray that today You would illumine our hearts and minds from this passage, goading us to love and good works, goading us to faithfulness and righteousness as David exhibited those qualities before the people. Lord, that all this might bring glory to Your name. Goad us to those attributes faithfulness and righteousness, that you might be lifted up on earth as you are in the heavenlies. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, who intercedes for us even now at your right hand. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Brethren, Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Though these words would be written by David's son Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, Such truths are timeless, and these truths describe the days in which David reigned in Israel, following God's covenant promise to preserve David's throne forever. Ultimately, David's kingdom would suffer greatly because of his sin and the sins of the people, reaffirming Solomon's statement that sin is a reproach to any people. But in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, and the first or excuse me, in chapter 8, here where we are now, we see the first half of Proverbs 14.34 being lived out in David's early reign. Righteousness exalts a nation. Now to refresh our memories, you will recall that after Saul's death, David reigned over two tribes of Israel, while Ishbosheth, Saul's son, reigned over the other ten tribes. The divided kingdoms engaged in a civil war until Ishbosheth's death, when the elders of the ten northern tribes sued for peace with David, and the civil war ceased. David was rightly then anointed to his kingly throne, and he immediately conquered Jerusalem, making Jerusalem his capital city. He then battles the Philistines twice at the direction of God and defeats them, And then he begins restoring Israel's society by bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem for the worship of God. His conquests and God's favor upon his kingship is noticed by King Hiram of Tyre, who sends men and material to Jerusalem to build David a palace out of cedar. As David pauses to consider the great blessings that God is shining upon Israel, David laments, that he resides in a palace of cedar while God resides in a tent. 2 Samuel 7.2 David proposes to build God a temple, but God intervenes and reminds David that he is content to visit Israel in, a ta- in the tabernacle, but he, that he would reward David's house with an everlasting kin- kingdom, and David's son would build God the temple David desired. And this brings us to our passage today. And these foregoing events remind us that righteousness can be exhibited and pursued in the midst of profound difficulties. God's plans are not thwarted by unfaithfulness and sin. 
Men like Saul, Abner, Ishbosheth, Joab, and Uzzah all did things that were displeasing to God. Yet God used these men and their sins to shine the light of righteousness on Israel through David. His response, David's response to each of these men in large measure showed Israel what true righteousness was like. The uprightness of David was both an example to Israel, but also a virtue of the people of Israel. David exemplified in these days the faithful, righteous king. And in this passage today, we see that faithfulness being blessed. He became the standard by which all other kings in Israel would be compared. Throughout the historical books, when a, a king is mentioned over Israel, they always compare him. He, was, he, he ruled like David or in the, in the ways of David or he was not like David because he was evil and unrighteous. So this chapter teaches us two important lessons about righteous leadership and one important warning about carefulness in leadership. And that becomes the outline for today's sermon. The two important lessons regarding leadership are found in the statements contained in verses 6 and 15. In verse 6, we read the phrase, So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And in verse 15, we read the phrase, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Now it may seem that these two phrases are more statements of fact and not lessons in leadership. However, I would contend that these, are, that these are facts that result from faithfulness. However, I would contend that these facts that result from faithfulness are, are taught to us by way of fact. That this thing, these things happen when God lifts up the faithful. Absent David's faithfulness, the Lord would not have preserved David as he did or would have nor would David have made a name for himself as he did, as the Scriptures teach us in our chapter. So maintaining faithful leadership in a nation or in one's business, in one's home, and in the church results in God's preservation and produces a witness for others. Thus, the tenacious pursuit of God and His righteousness will result in in God protecting and preserving your witness. And that's the lesson that we need to learn from our passage today. The last of the three lessons that, I, that can be found in our passage today that I want to bring to our attention is found in the listing of appointments that David makes or maintains in his cabinet in verses 16 through 18. There is one glaringly ruthless murderer in that list. A man who David had already condemned in word, but had failed to condemn in deed. That man would disobey the king, and it would cost David the life of his own son. And so I want to speak to that particular person at the end of the sermon. So then let's begin. God preserved David wherever he went. That's the phrase in verse 6 that is a, a, a phrase that, that happens because of David's faithfulness in large measure. In the first 12 verses of our text, God recounts significant victories by David over the enemies of Israel. In verses 11 and 12, the spoils of David's victories are dedicated to the Lord. Likewise, the nations from whom the spoils were taken 
are recounted by way of summary. Beginning in verse 11, King David also dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. We should take note of two things found in these historical events. First, David is not an absent warrior when the foreign nations who are inhabiting the promised land must be subdued. He's not kept in his palace. He's not behind the walls of Jerusalem where safety is. He is out doing the work of the kingdom. He is prominent. He's at the forefront. He is leading the armies of Israel in subduing the nations in the land. Second, David is quick to give God the glory by way of tribute when those nations are subdued. Now I want us to think back to Genesis when God promised a land to His people, to their forefather Abraham. God promised an inheritance to Israel, the descendants of Abraham in Genesis 15, 18-20, and then commands them to go and to take the land as their possession after the Egyptian captivity, to take the, the land from the nations who wrongly inhabit it in Numbers 13 and 14, chapters 13 and 14. God expects His will to be done in this matter. I've given you the land. I expect you now to do it. Take the land for your inheritance. Dispossess the wicked and take command and and take authority over the land that I've given you. In Numbers 14, verses 20 through 23, we read of God's relenting from destroying Israel after Moses' intercession for his people. You'll remember that the, the people of Israel had gone through somewhat of a wilderness wandering, had then been told to take the land. They send in the ten spies to come back with a good report, eight come back with a bad report. The people of Israel uh, embraced the bad report, saying we shouldn't go in. The land's occupied by giants. We can't overtake them. Their faith wanes. God's ire is raised against Israel. He's ready to destroy them as a people. And Moses intercedes for them, saying, if you destroy your people now, you will, you will affirm what the Egyptians say, that God has left His people to die in a wilderness. And if you do that, your testimony, your name, will be brought into suspicion. And God says, you're right, I'm relenting of this. I will preserve a people, but this generation won't see the land. In Numbers 14, verses 20-23, we read of God's relenting from destroying Israel after Moses' intercession. Hear what it says. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. He's speaking to Moses. But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's the first thing he says to Moses even though he's relented from destroying Israel. As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. In other words, even in this circumstance, these things will work together for good for the kingdom. 
Then he says, because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now in these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. So a whole generation of Israelites would die in the wilderness, never seeing that promised land because of their lack of faithfulness. Now, brethren, contrast that to David. David believes this believes what God told the Israelites way back then, centuries before. This is a land that belongs to me. It's your inheritance, and I want you to possess it. And I want you to dispel those, the wickedness that's in the land, and conquer this land for my namesake. David believes this and acts upon the promises that attend the Abrahamic covenant. Our passage today includes a reference to the land adjacent to the Euphrates River as you go through the historical account. To my knowledge, this land had never been subdued by the Israelites until the kingship of David. The Euphrates River existed way up on the Fertile Crescent, long, a long distance from that area of the Middle East that had been promised to Israel, though that land had been promised as well, but the Israelites had never gone there to possess it. David was particular about going even to the furthest reaches of the promised land to possess the land that was given to the Israelites to possess. David was intimately involved in subduing the enemies of God even to the farthest reaches of the promised land, leading the Israelites from victory to victory. And what does he do with the spoils? Does he take them back to his own palace and, and, and melt them down and make that, his palace all the more elaborate? No. He gives the spoils to the Lord. Just as David had sought God's favor and glory in fighting the Philistines just a couple chapters before, following the end of the Israeli civil war, here David is quick to give the glory in taking the spoils of victory and dedicating them to the Lord. And we see that in verse 11. He's done this for the glory of God, not for his own esteem. We have to keep that in mind here. And yet, what happens? What happens? God gives him a testimony for his faithfulness. We'll get to that in just a moment. David does not seek his own glory, but he seeks the glory of God and the honor of God with the spoils of the victory. All the land has now been possessed. All of God's enemies in the land have been, have been made subject to the Israelites. And what does God say the consequences of such faithfulness is? The consequence of his desire to give God the glory results in his name being exalted by the nations of others. God exalts the righteousness of David when his glory is sought, when God's glory is sought, and not the glory of David. And we see this in verse 11. So David administers then judgment and justice in the land as well. Not only did he seek God's glory in subduing the nations within the land, his own people he wants to treat with judgment and justice. 
This reminds us again of the passage of, in Micah, though this would be said many, many centuries later by the prophet Micah, that what is, the, what is man to do for God but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before Him? David exemplifies that in his own governing of the people. In verse 15, David administered judgment and justice to all his people. This is a general term. We're going to see in just a moment there's one person who, who did not receive justice when he should have, and he will become a curse to David, largely for not having David not having done that. But in large measure, throughout the land, David is administering judgment and justice before the people. Faithfulness has often been defined as a man doing what is right when no one is looking. Faithfulness is a man doing what is right when no one is looking. When you're by yourself. When no one sees your actions or the thoughts in your mind. When they're expressed in isolation. That's a righteous man who is faithful when no one is looking. Now why do I bring that up? In some respects, this is what is happening with David. Let me ask this question. Who was David's peer as king in Israel? Who stands in earthly judgment of David as king in Israel? No one. David only answers to God. Such is the case with kings and presidents, according to Psalm 2. They answer to God alone. So in isolation, David has but one person to honor, and that's his Maker and his Lord. So in some respects, that's what David is doing. He is being faithful when there's no one looking around at him to hold him accountable. Only God holds him accountable. He only answers to God. In the case of David, he took that subordinate position very seriously. David recognized the importance of Psalm 2 and lived it out. He kissed the sun so that the Lord would not become angry. True faithfulness has the attribute of longevity. Faithfulness is not short-lived. True faithfulness endures. And I would maintain that even in David's sin, which we're going to see in just a couple of weeks, even in his sin, his repentance was evidence of his faithfulness. He would show godly repentance, which is an evidence of enduring faithfulness. This too is a lesson from our passage in faithfulness to God who provides security for the man who remains faithful even in difficult times. David goes to war with all these nations and he's out in front. His life is at risk as king in Israel. And his trust is in God to preserve him. And not only does God preserve him in the faithful work that he's doing, but he lifts him up with a testimony before the other nations. Well, this brings me to the last point that I want to bring to our attention. And this is the listing of those David appoints to his cabinet. Now, we're in the midst of that happening in our country with our new president-elect. He's choosing a cabinet and uh, men and women who will be brought to uh, advise him in different areas, who have areas of expertise. Presumably, they are fit for the office 
they will be vetted, uh, hopefully well, by the Congress uh, before they take their positions. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, in our own country, the president-elect is choosing cabinet members. David did the same thing, beginning in verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Abimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Sariah was the scribe. Benaniah was the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. And so this is the cabinet that was surrounding David. Most of the men listed here are men of great character who would serve David well in his administration. Yet there is one truly glaring difference, and that man is the first man listed, Joab. Joab. Now who was Joab? Remember, we've, we've heard his name before. We've seen bits of his character before. You will remember that Joab was the leader of the armies of David, his, his first general under him. And when David became king of, of uh, uh, Benjamin and, and Judah, those two tribes, it was Joab who would lead the armies of David against uh, Ishbosheth and Abner, Abner being the, the chief general of Ishbosheth and his army. So Joab was on one side, Abner was his counterpart on the other side. Abner serving Ishbosheth, Joab serving David, and they would war with one another. So this man is a warrior, and he was a renowned warrior. His, often when he went to battle, he would win the battle, and it would be attributed to him as being the, the reason for the winning of the battle. But brethren, this man was bloodthirsty. He was vengeful. You might recall that his younger brother, Azahel, the gazelle, uh, that was what he was likened to, a gazelle. He was fleet of foot, so those who are runners in the, in the uh, congregation today will understand this. He was a long-distance runner. And he pursued Abner after a battle. And Abner, being the general of the opposing army, they're at war, he pursues him and tries to overtake him to kill him. He does overtake him, but before, he, before the, the fight begins between Abner and Azahel, the gazelle, uh, Abner says to Azahel, if you leave now, I won't kill you. But if you stick around, I will, I will kill you. And Azahel stays to fight Abner, and he's killed in hand-to-hand combat by the general of Ishbosheth's army. Well, this is the younger brother of Joab. And Joab and his other brother decide... They're going to take Abner's life. Well, by the time Abner, uh, uh, by the time uh, Azahel dies, the next thing we see Abner doing is suing for peace with David on behalf of Israel, the other ten tribes of Israel. He works out a truce and is, is about to go back to Ishbosheth and say, "You need to, you need to yield to David. He's the anointed of God. He should be the king over Israel." Abner is actually working toward peace between these warring factions in Israel when Joab murders Abner, taking vengeance upon his younger brother, Azahel. This is the man 
who David is making his defense secretary in Israel. He's a murderer. And David, at the time of Abner's murder, condemns Joab for doing what he did. But unlike two other instances when Ishbosheth died, when Saul died, and men took their lives, raising their hands against the Lord's anointed, David took their lives for doing that. David does not take the life of Joab for murdering Abner. Now, we don't know exactly why, but had he done that deed when it was an appropriate time to do it, likely some other things would not have happened. For instance, Joab would later kill Absalom, David's brother, or David's son. Not only that, he would conspire with David to kill Uriah the Hittite so that David could take Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, for himself as wife. So you see, because David didn't deal with Joab as he should have, with judgment and justice, Joab would become an Achilles heel to David. A conspirator, a co-conspirator in the death of Uriah the Hittite, as well as the man who would take Absalom's life, David's son. What's interesting about the taking of Absalom's life by Joab is that David had explicitly told Joab not to do that, but to show mercy to Absalom. And Joab refused and did the exact opposite. We'll see that very shortly, just a couple chapters from now. Well, I want to bring three applications to bear in our lives from these different uh, things that we've seen in this chapter. First of all, David acted on God's will to subdue the entire land of Israel. And he did his best to do that. Now, he's a man. We could, we could point to things in that uh, effort to subject the whole land to the God of Israel where David wasn't quite as faithful as he could have been. There are some, some inconsistencies there. But here's a man who was pursuing the work of the kingdom of God with diligence. Though he was a man, a sinner, God would give him a reputation, not just within the land, but outside the land as a righteous, faithful man. God, the Scriptures say that he was a man after God's own heart. I don't know that any other, any other character in all of Scripture is given such a title. A man after God's own heart. And yet David was still a man. Brethren, we are weak because we're men and women. Because we're sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And that sinfulness that's in our life will plague us till our last breath on this earth, in this life. But when we are translated into the kingdom of God in its fullness at death or at Christ's second coming. Let's hope it's that. The, that. That battle with our carnal nature will be overdone. It will, be, it, will be, it will come to an end. And our whole life's work and privilege will be to bring honor to God each and every breath that we take thereafter. But in this life, God tells us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with Him. We are to pursue the Lord's kingdom and His righteousness and everything else will be added unto us. And David exemplifies those attributes 
So we are to follow His example. God will protect and make a name for those who do His will, as He did with David. David conquered all these people, pillaged their wealth for what end? To bring glory to God. He gave it all in tribute to God. He didn't keep any of it back. And God lifted him up. That too should be our hope. That even in the midst of difficult things that could cost us greatly, and even in the days ahead, it could cost us our lives, the witness of Christ. We look to God for protection. We look to God to lift us up. And it may be, there will be casualties in, the, in, the, in this battle with Satan's kingdom, no doubt about it. There will be casualties and are. Go to Muslim countries right now and you'll see casualties. Christian casualties. Men and women whose lives have been taken for their faith. But they will become renowned in the kingdom. And they are already in the presence of our Lord. And God is already blessing them. We ought not to fear the faces of men, but we're to fear God, the Scriptures teach us. And then I want to come to that last example, the example of Joab. We need to be careful to honor God with those who are in places of authority around us. That we have the, the liberty to place in authority around us. For instance, young people, I want to give you some instruction here. It's important in choosing friends that you choose people who are like-minded in the building of the kingdom. Those should be your closest friends. Now, I'm not saying that you should have unbelieving you should not have unbelieving friends. I think you should. How else will they hear the testimony of the gospel unless we share it with them? We have to befriend the ungodly to bring them out of the mire that they might see the grace of God in our lives and want it for their own lives. David was a testimony. This passage tells us that very thing. He was a testimony to others. Kings came to him with tribute because they saw that God was blessing him. We need to have that same kind of character before others who are unbelievers. But when it comes to our closest friends, those who advise us, those who we trust with the intimacies of our lives, We need godly people in those positions. And for young people who are not yet married, who desire to be married, that's your first choice. That's your first choice. We made it clear to our children, you can change jobs, you can change schools, you can change your clothes, your hairstyle, but you can't change your spouse. Once you've chosen that person, You've chosen that person for life. And the Bible tells us that we're not to marry outside the faith. So we've got to be careful not even to get close to that, lest we be tempted to fail. Lest we be tempted to fail. Now we're going to see when David, in just a few chapters, when David left the diligence of fighting the battles of Israel against the enemies of Israel, and he left it to Joab the murderer, that he was tempted to fail and did. And who does he then go to for help? Joab the murderer. I'm sending Uriah the Hittite back to you, the husband of Bathsheba, and I want you to put him, Joab, at the front of the battle so that he dies first. That's called murder. 
And that's what happened. So we've got to be careful to guard ourselves against temptations that would take us into unrighteousness because then we spiral down out of control trying to to justify our bad actions before God. We need to be humble and trust God for the increase. Now, I was once a young man. I know that's hard to believe, but there was a day I was a young man and I desired to be married and I desired a righteous wife and I desired those things and I there were times where I got impatient and I thought this gal was the right gal. I thought that gal was the right gal. I thought that gal was the right gal. Well, the right gal sitting in the room today and we've been married over 30 years now. 35 this year, right honey? Coming up? Okay. I got it right. I know the date, August 29th. Um, uh, but we have to be, think about David becoming king in Israel, young people. Think about how long it took before God actually put him on the throne. He spent seven years being king over two tribes, and prior to that, he spent about 12 years, maybe 13 years, having been anointed, but running from Saul all those years just to preserve his own life. For nearly 20 years, he waited to become the king in Israel. Even though Samuel had already anointed him to that office. 20 years. Now you may desire a spouse, but it may be that God's going to make you wait. Is that a bad thing? No. Because He's building your character for the right person who needs that kind of character when they get married. The character of patience. Okay? So don't... And and gentlemen... Don't let this be lost on you and your businesses. You need to surround yourself with people who are righteous as well in your businesses. You might be tempted to go into business with people who aren't, who you don't know about their character, who you don't know. Well, let me encourage you. Be careful. Be careful. Choose your advisors and those who you go into business with carefully. Because they can lead you astray, just like Joab is going to be complicit with David in his sin. Don't put a Joab in your cabinet. You're asking for trouble when you do that. Don't do it. What about your own homes? Who do you have in your homes? Who do you, who do you entrust your children to when they're not in your home? You say, I don't do that. Well, that's one way to keep evil out of the home. Just to not entrust your children to others. But it's hard to live a life and not entrust your children to others. But you've got to be careful there as well. And sinners are all about us. They could be close at hand. They could be in your own family. And so you've got to be careful there as well. I'm saying all that to say this. God has given us an example in our passage today where a man who was unfaithful became a cabinet member to David, the highest office holder in all of the kingdom of God. He was a murderer. He was vengeful. He was bloodthirsty. Yes, he was the head of the army. So in some senses, you might be able to say, well, you want a guy like that, don't you? No, you don't. You want a guy who does justice, who loves mercy and walks humbly with God like David, because God gives the increase, 
not the might of men. David was rewarded in, in overthrowing these nations because of faithfulness, not because he had a bloodthirsty, murdering general who led his armies. It was because of faithfulness that God gave the increase. And that's where we have to put our efforts to be faithful before God and trust Him that He will lift us up. Let us pray together.